Hello, and welcome to Philosophy Voice, a podcast from the Center for Ethics at the University of Pardubice, Czech Republic. Thank you for joining us. My name is Patrick Keenan, and I am hosting today's podcast. I'm joined by my colleagues Peter Tuck and Vladimir Lukic. We are PhD students at the Center for Ethics and are organizing a graduate conference which will take place in August in Pardubice, titled What Really Matters? Reflections on Human Values. Our keynote speakers for the conference are Professor Roger Crisp and today's guest, Dr. Debbie Roberts. Dr. Roberts is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. She works mainly in meta-ethics and is particularly interested in the metaphysics of the normative. We are discussing Dr. Roberts' paper called Depending on the Thick. There will be a link to the abstract in the show notes below. And now, on to the conversation. What I'd like to ask you about is specifically your research focus. So we can see from your publications and your teaching that you have a particular interest in meta-ethics, in uh, thick concepts. And I'm just wondering for the listeners what you saw in that that made it such an important and interesting area of philosophy that made you really want to work in it. Um, so I think that a lot of people um, walk around with a sort of background view, background assumptions. Um, a lot of people would call themselves naturalists, and a lot of people want to say that science gives us the true account of the world and what exists. And I think that along with that kind of background worldview, typically people think, well, only natural features like mass or charge or sort of genuine features of, of the world and normative features like being morally right and good, don't, either they don't really exist or they have to be reduced to natural ones to earn a place in, in reality. And also people, I think, um, maybe not people within philosophy of science so much, but, but people tend to think that science has to be value-free to be objective since science deals in facts and values are not facts. I, I first became interested in thick concepts because it looked like thick concepts um, were a way into undermining that kind of worldview. So it looked like they were a way into showing that values are genuine features of the world, um, that there are evaluative facts, that science doesn't have to be value-free to be objective. Um, and in general, I'm skeptical of um, sharp distinctions um, like the distinction between facts and value. And I think I don't think there is one distinction between facts and value. Many of them are dubious. Um, and I like the idea that uh, concepts have this kind of, I think, revolutionary potential that really they can destabilize the conventional way of carving things up. Thank you. That's very interesting. And uh, I also think that's what's, what's interesting about that topic. And um, so it would be fair to say that firstly, you don't think we should have a purely materialist worldview, but secondly, you don't think that we should try and draw a sharp line between facts and values. So we shouldn't think they're two separate conversations, but there's actually like kind of one picture that, that we should be yeah. looking at. I think okay. that's right. I mean, I'm... Um... One of the things that I've been thinking about more recently, and it's kind of off the back of my work on fake concepts, is um, naturalism itself. Like what, what naturalism 
is. And what naturalism is, is itself a controversial philosophical um, topic. Um, and I think that, so within the area that I work in, so within metaethics, people tend to assume, they tend to talk about naturalism and the natural as if there's sort of one fairly um, well-defined idea that they have in mind. Um, and I think that that's misleading and that actually, uh, so you, naturalism need not um, involve being a materialist. Naturalism, depending on what you mean by materialism, naturalism certainly need not involve being a physicalist. Uh, and exactly what, nat what naturalism is, is itself up for grabs. So another distinction that I don't particularly like is the distinction between naturalism and non-naturalism. Okay, yeah, and um, yeah, I think physicalism probably is a more accurate word for what I was trying to ask about there. So um, for, for those listening, uh, Dr. Roberts has recently wrote a, a paper specifically focusing on fit concepts and on a particular orthodoxy or received wisdom in metaethics about uh, a kind of a cluster of views which can be variously referred to as talking about grounding or supervenience or the dependence of normative facts on non-normative facts. You could just briefly tell us what you understand those concepts to be and um, what the first of the paper is in terms of uh, problematizing those or maybe being therapeutic to uh, philosophers who talk in this kind of way. Um, yeah, sure. So the paper, the, the target of the paper is, again, a kind of distinction that gets made all over the place in metaphysics. Um, and that distinction gets made in various different terms, but people take themselves to be making the same distinction, even though they, they use different terms for it. One way of making the distinction is to distinguish between the normative or the evaluative um, or the moral on the one hand and the non-normative on the other. Um, the non-normative also sometimes gets called the natural, uh, also sometimes gets called the descriptive, also sometimes gets called the factual. And these different ways of making the distinction, so we might say there's a distinction between the normative and the non-normative, or the evaluative and the natural, or the moral and the factual. Generally, um, the idea is, in metaethics, I think, is kind of in the water, that these two realms are separate, there's a sharp distinction between them, and the one depends on the other. So, um, to use the terms that I use in the paper, the normative depends on the non-normative. So to give you an example, um, that some action is morally good, that doesn't just float free, right? It, it, the action can't just be morally good. It has to have some other features as well. And the assumption is that those features are, or are ultimately non-normative features, and the goodness of the action depends on the other features that the action has. So it's good because it was considered and thoughtful or whatever those other features may be. Now that's that's a dependence relation. So the moral or the normative or the evaluative depends on the non-normative, the non-evaluative, the natural. That's the, the idea. Um, the other relation that gets talked about a lot in metaethics is that of supervenience. Supervenience in general is the idea that you can't have 
one sort of difference without there being some other sort of difference. So um, you can't have, I don't know, a difference in the aesthetic of properties of painting without a difference in the physical particles of paint that make it up. So um, there's, it's sometimes called a modal covariance. So you can't, it can't, you can't have an A difference without a B difference is the idea. Now, supervenience is kind of a, a technical term of art and um, it doesn't actually, um, if there's a supervenience relation, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's also a dependence relation. You can have supervenience relations without dependence relations. Um, that doesn't too matter too much here. What I'm primarily interested in in the paper is the dependence relation. And in general, people in metaethics think that the normative supervenes on the non-normative. Why? Well, because the normative depends on the non-normative. So there can be, in supervenience language, there can be no normative difference without a non-normative difference. There can be no moral difference without um, a natural difference. What explains that? Well, because the normative depends on the non-normative. In order for something to have a normative property, it has to have some other non-normative properties that make it have the normative property. So to go back to an example, for something to have the normative property of being a good action, it has to have some other features that make it good. And the assumption is those features are non-normative. So that's, that's the, the target of the paper, this idea that there is this distinction between the normative and the non-normative and um, that there are these relations between these two realms. What I try to do in the paper is destabilize that idea. People tend to think that that dependence relation is an a priori conceptual truth, or it's a truism. It's just, you know, it's so obvious we, we hardly need bother mentioning it. Um, and I think that that is, that's an assumption. It's something that people bring to ethics rather than find in our actual normative practice. And once we start looking at actual normative practice, we see that, yes, ethical, moral, normative properties are dependent, but um, it's by no means clear that they're dependent on non-normative stuff. And that's because of the role of thick concept. So that is the paper in a nutshell. Um, obviously, there's, there's a lot more detail that one could, could go into there. Yeah, of course. And that is fascinating, uh, precisely because, like you mentioned, um, this is an orthodoxy, like pretty much everyone in matter of ethics just writes as if that's obvious and that should be our starting point. And uh, you're one of the only people I've ever seen to actually problematize that. And uh, what kind of uptake have you found with that? Have you found that philosophers are quite resistant to your views, but uh, you find an uphill battle with that one? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you often, uh, so I have a, another paper um, specifically doing the same kind of thing to supervenience. And the reaction to both is um, mostly, oh, but supervenience just has to be true. It just must be true. Um, um, you know, of course, of course, the normative must depend on the non-normative. It has to be like that. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of resistance. Um, a lot of the time people take me to the, 
be defending non-naturalism. So non-naturalism in metaethics being the view that uh, there are normative properties, there are moral properties, there are moral facts, but they're not natural facts. They're non-natural facts. Um, I'm not defending non-naturalism in either this paper or the supervenience paper. I mean, a non-naturalist could hold the, the view that I'm defending. But again, I think that the natural, non-natural distinction is, is problematic. Um, I'm also, apart from being influenced by some non-natural, so certainly people like Jonathan Dancy influenced my work, um, John McDowell, who sometimes gets called a, a non-naturalist. I'm also really influenced by Nicholas Stoughton's work. And Stoughton is a naturalist, but he's a non-reductive naturalist. Um, I think that his work, particularly his paper on supervenience, is, is underappreciated. Vladimir, did you have a comment or a question? I have a question, uh, which is based on the authors that you have quoted throughout your paper. And it's, for me personally, really interesting to note the sh little shifts in paradigm, because you have noted uh, Richard Hare, for example, or Mackey, and later on you have also quoted Zhang Will Smith, Kim, and my personal favorite, probably Alan Gibbard. And um, it is really strange for me for example, when I was reading your paper and when you were quoting uh, those authors, I found it supernatural, uh, pun intended, supernatural to think that this way of uh, thinking about the dependence concepts is dependency between norm normative and non-normative is, you know, completely, completely obvious. And afterwards, after the discussion that you had, with the authors within your paper, it seems to me that it is, that there is so much to add there. And this little shifts in paradigm, these little shifts in um, the things that we're taking for granted seem at least to me quite important. And do you think that your contribution to this shift in paradigm is something that is motivated by these, these um, uh, general, general, general investigations in metaethics, which are which are attacking the old, the old uh, paradigm. Do you find yourself as one of the one of the people who is constantly questioning the old paradigms and trying to establish a way to think about metaethics or the dependence concept in in the very nature in a different way? Yeah, I would characterize myself as trying to do that. I I think there are a lot of orthodoxies in in metaethics. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons that I really love metaethics so much is that you get to do all sorts of other kinds of philosophy. It's, it's very interdisciplinary. So you get to do some metaphysics, some epistemology, some philosophy of language, and, and so on, depending on where your interests lie. Um, and I think that in, in recent, I mean, metaethics has always been but we've seen a kind of explosion of this in recent years where now it's no longer really accurate to call it metaethics, it's more metanormative theory. And there is a lot of really excellent work being done in metanormative theory, which draws on work that's happening outside of, of uh, metanormative theory. So um, draws on work in philosophy of language, metaphysics or whatever. Um, and I think that thick concepts is um, an area in metaethics which is still relatively underexplored. Um, people have done 
a lot of work on the topic recently and in a way that I think shifts paradigms um, in, in the way Vladimir that you were suggesting. Now, of course, the original thick concept debates, well, maybe not the very original one, um, but certainly the debates which started with Williams and McDowell and Putnam. Um, and that was drawing on work by Foote and, and Murdoch. The idea was that the concepts were supposed to undermine the fact-value distinction. More recent work um, has shown that those arguments don't work, I think. Um, but there's still some, I, I still think there's something there. And um, focus on that concepts can help us to challenge certain orthodoxies in metanormative theorizing. So the dependence constraint, the subunions constraint, and also I think the, the natural non-natural distinction. Thanks so much. That was super illuminating. And also, I, I, I just have one, one more interesting question. I mean, which I find interesting, uh, but I might be pushing the concepts a little bit further. So when we're, we're talking, and this is something I, 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 had, um, I had in mind while reading your paper. For example, when I was reading about the correlation between the normative and non-normative, let us, let us push the concepts a little bit further and let's think about them in a specific way. And this is just my premise, of course, to think about the non-normative non, um, as an external, while normative as an internal sphere. So for example, we apprehend specific uh, values, specific uh, things, right, from the external things because they have specific properties, right? And for example, Scanlon has this backpassing account, which is really famous. We value things because of their properties and so on and so on. And um, I, I feel like if we were to push this a little bit further, if we were to talk about normative, normativity being mind-dependent, internal, and uh, things that we find uh, in the world as an external that are a part of normativity, normativity would always be dependent on the internal, normativity would always be dependent on the external, but that wouldn't be the full story of it. And then the interesting thing for me would be forwarding this for the later discussion about how does it, um, how does it, deal with ethics in general? How do we think about the substantial ethical theory if we have this as a premise? This, this dependence, which is internal, external, and then the questions arise from the meta-ethical to the normative ethics to the applied ethics. And it seems to me super interesting. And I, I would like to hear uh, if, if you would like to comment on this internal-external distinction and how does it relate to the normative and non-normative concepts that you use in your paper? So there's one way of, of hearing it where it is just the same distinction um, in different terms. So I think that, for example, Blackburn would be very happy with that way of putting it. So Blackburn talk, talks in terms of inputs and outputs and the... The inputs are um, the things that we perceive in, in the external world, and then the outputs are our reactions to that world, very roughly speaking. And obviously, Blackburn's picture is a lot more complicated than that, but that's, that's what it is at base. And then um, it's not the case that we're always aware on Blackburn's account. It's not the case that we're always aware that that is what's going on. But 
Um, in actual fact, what's going on is there's only non-normative stuff out there. Um, all the normative stuff comes from inside us, so to speak. It's our reaction to the, the non-normative stuff that is external to us. I think that Gibbard has roughly the same picture in mind, although he uses different terms. Um, and I take it that the arguments for my paper uh, are meant to destabilize that view. Now, it's worth noting that my aim in this paper is not to show that, um, that the norm normative does not, in fact, depend on the non-normative. My aim is to show that people just assume that that is true, that it's and that they take it to be a truth with a certain kind of status. It's a truism, right? We don't even need to argue for it, it's obvious. It's an a priori conceptual truth that acts as a constraint on competence with normative concepts. And it's that that I'm disputing, right? I think that for all that our concepts show, and, and if we pay attention to our actual normative practice, we don't establish that the dependence constraint is like that. Um, because actually, when we look at ordinary normative practice and how we make normative judgments, often we come to a rest at the thick, right? We don't bottom out in non-normative features. We bottom out in thick, evaluative features. So as far as we can tell from our concepts, it's possible that the dependence constraint as it is ordinarily construed is false. I mean, if it's possible that it's false, then it, it's not a truism. It's not an a priori conceptual truth. That's roughly the argument. And I think that the same kind of argument can be run for the internal and external distinction. Um, because it sounded to me as if that was the normative, non-normative distinction, just in different terms. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for the answer. That was, that was superb. Patrick. Peter, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to interrupt and basically we're going to have to cut it for a minute. And I'm sorry I missed my last part, but basically I borrowed this computer and the charger just caught fire. So um, I'm going to have to change onto my phone and rejoin <laughs> in a few minutes. And um, so I guess you can cut this, right? Yeah, I'll edit it out. Okay, yeah. Maybe, uh, will you rejoin the same link, Peter? Yeah, I will. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that on the screen, but it actually <laughs> just on fire. And that was, I, didn't, I didn't see that part. but uh, quite scary, actually. Yeah. But yeah, um, I'll, I'll be back in a moment. Okay. It's like controversial philosophical views. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny if this went on podcast, you know, oh, think concepts. Oh, my charges got fire. <laughs> Vladimir, do you want to, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think how to save it in the, in an edit. I mean, it, we could just keep all of it in it because it's kind of funny, but do you, do you want to just ask a question in the meantime, Vladimir? Well, I, I do want to ask a question. So, for me, while I was reading a paper, it seems to me like uh, it seemed to me like a wild train ride because in the beginning, when um, when you were establishing the first couple of premises and first uh, and of course the background of the discussion, as I said a little bit earlier, it seems it seemed to me like you're trying to even argue for the fact that truism can be established, even though you have mentioned numerous times that. It seems a little bit dubious, but then it, it was really interesting to me that on another page, it was page number number six. Yes, you you're you're 
uh, assigning four different views about how we can uh, how we can assess truism in both uh, both ontological and descriptive way. And then you and then at one point you say, well, I want to argue that all of them are not truism. And this for me was mind blowing because it was super interesting to read your argument throughout the throughout the rest of the pages. And I think for me personally, I think that your goal was achieved because you have proved that all of those uh, view, views and standpoints were could be found dubious to say the least. And if you could, could you expand a little bit more on that? How, how, how did you, how did you uh, find yourself to attack those viewpoints and how did you make the difference between them? Um, so just, that I'm, just to make sure that um, we're, we're on the same page. So are you referring to the four different versions of the dependence constraints or the A script? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, so I guess I was led to characterizing the dependence constraint in those different ways because when I was looking at the just how the de dependence constraint is talked about in the literature, um, and there are some quotes in the paper as examples, it seemed to me that then the authors are not all making the same kind of claim. Some of them are talking about a relation between, between judgments. Um, some of them are talking about a metaphysical relation. And when they're talking about a relation between judgments, like judging that something is good, um, and the idea is that in order to, there's some kind of connection between judging that something is good and judging that things have other non-normative features that make it good. There are different ways in which you can understand that relation between judgments. So you could understand it as a purely descriptive thing, right? This is just how we make normative judgments. When I judge that something is good, I have to first, or in some sense first, maybe not consciously, but I have to judge that it has some other non-normative features that make it good. That's just how, um, as a matter of fact, our normative judgments work. Um, but it, I mean, that in itself is just a kind of contingent empirical observation. You could understand the, um, the dependence constraint, the relation between judgments in a stronger way than that. You could understand it um, that in order for something to be a normative judgment, it has to be based on non-normative features. So that would be to say that it's constitutive of something being a normative judgment that is based on non-normative features. Um, or you could, as I think Michael Smith does, you could understand it as a kind of justification thing. So in order for your uh, normative judgment to be justified or appropriate, it has to be based on non-normative features. And in the authors who understand uh, the dependence constraint in these ways justify uh, their, their claims by appeal to ordinary evaluative practice or ordinary normative practice. So, uh, in particular, I have in mind Nick Zangwill and Michael Smith. They, they sort of say, well, you know, if we look at ordinary normative practice, this is just how it works. You know, this is how we make normative judgments. Um, and it's that that I take issue with. But then there's also the ontological claim that normative properties must ultimately depend on non-normative properties. Um, that's a metaphysical claim that I think a lot of people in metaphysics subscribe to, even if they don't explicitly say so. It's, it's sort of 
at work in the background, particularly um, if they're talking about supervenience, they think that this is supervenience as a nice physical relation between the properties. They think that this is what explains it. And I think that um, once we sort of go through all of the ascriptive versions, we, we actually end up in a position where we can doubt the ontological claim as well. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for the answer. Vladimir, did you have a follow-up comment or should we give Peter a question? Uh, I, I, for, I don't have any follow-up comments. I think this was super well elaborated. Okay, yeah, I do have a few questions, but can you hear me clearly? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, obviously, I just missed some stuff. So sorry if you've actually already answered what I'm going to say. But um, one thing that really interests me in what you mentioned earlier is that you're influenced by Jonathan Dancy. Like, um, I'm a big fan of Dancy as well and um, of particularism and uh, what, basically, what things particularists would say about fit concepts that, like, moderational views wouldn't say. Like, um, or what orthodoxies you would uh, reject because of the combination of uh, endorsing particularism and um, some of the views that you've espoused about fake concepts. But basically, what do you see the, uh, the relevance or influence to be? Like, what do you take from holism and particularism that's especially important to uh, looking at fake concepts? So I guess the most obvious connection concerns... Um what gets called natural shapelessness. So for people who have the view that I do of thick concepts, and um, that, that's the view that they are irreducibly thick. Right? So there's, there's, there's no way of reducing the thick property to a thin evaluative property and a descriptive property, or even a couple of thin evaluative properties and a descriptive property. They're, they're just irreducibly thick. Um, one of the arguments for irreducible thickness is that, well, um, we can't separate out a thin bit and a non-evaluative descriptive bit because uh, when we go looking at all the different instances of application of the concept, there isn't like one set of non-evaluative or descriptive properties that recurs in every single case. The, it gets sometimes it's usually put in terms of concepts. The concepts is naturally shapeless. Um, now I understand shapelessness as a kind of radical holism claim. So the idea that um, in one in one context a collection of, of properties might make an action kind, but in a different case the same properties might fail to make um, for kindness, um, or they might fail to make for kindness with the same kind of valence. So kindness might in one case be having positive moral valence and in another case have a negative moral valence. Uh, that's probably the most clear overlap with holism and particularism. Um, and that's the claim that I call radical holism in, in the paper. Um, Dancy has a paper on thick concepts which doesn't get talked about much and which has influenced my views a lot. So it's called In Defense of Fit Concepts. And it was presented at the joint sessions as part of the symposium between Blackburn, Blackburn and Gibbard. So Blackburn and Gibbard each presented papers on fit concepts and then Dancy had um, a paper ostensibly in response, 
but it mainly focuses on Blackburn's paper. Um, I think that that paper is kind of underappreciated and I, I'm, yeah, I'm very much influenced by the views that he's putting forward there. Peter, did you have a follow-up comment or anything? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that I find hardest to understand is the the argument from radical holism to irreducibility. So I understand what both of the concepts are separately, but I guess I'm struggling to understand um, how you justify the move from one to the other. Maybe you could just explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it's really straightforward. I mean, um, you could you could think, well, radical holism re blocks reducibility because I, in the same kind of way that multiple realizability in general blocks reduction. Um, so multiple realizability being the idea that, uh, so if you take in philosophy of mind, you say, well, um, pain is a certain physical state. And then someone comes along and says, no, you know, it's not necessarily that physical state. Pain is multiple realizable. It could be all sorts of different physical states that could realize pain. That blocks the reduction of pain to the original physical state, which you said it was. So something similar could be going on in the normative case. So you might say, well, kindness can't be reduced to this set of natural features because um, there are other ways to realize kindness. Kindness is multiply realizable. All different kinds of actions and people get called kind for all different kinds of uh, reasons and it's not the same package of reasons in every single place. Uh, that's that's one way to try and block reduction. That's not the way that I go in this paper though. So I think that the concepts are, are more complicated in that I think that they involve two different, two separate, well, separate in some senses kinds of evaluation. So to take an example, take the concept distributively just. Distributive justice, we think, is, is a good thing, right? It has a positive moral valence. And we can, uh, we can think of that um, positive moral valence as a global evaluation that applies to everything that falls under the concept distributively just. But I think that concepts like distributively just, thick concepts, also have embedded evaluation. They have evaluation that characterizes the very thing that's being evaluated. So, Take this as an example analysis. So um, if, if a um, distribution has features X, Y, and Z, then it is just. Now, what if one of those features were an evaluative feature? What if one of those features was fairness, for example? So something would have to have features X, Y, and fairness to be distributively just and so to be good. Embedded evaluations are the thing that, that I think make trouble for um, reduction um, because um, I think that thick concepts have these embedded evaluations that they themselves are thick and you can't factor those embedded evaluations into thin evaluation and non-evaluative description. So there's kind of thickness all the way down. And that's what makes um, thick concepts and thick properties irreducibly thick rather than radical holism. Basically, this is going to be 
I have a particular view about fit concepts, which I think is problematic, and I'm just going to tell you what it is, and then I'd like to hear what you'd say about it as an, as an expert on the topic, which is that um, when we talk about fit concepts, these are just terms we use to refer to actions we've already judged are right or wrong and certain natural features they have. So it basically refers to a relation between a moral evaluation and um, what kind of action it is, like it's a post hoc description. And um, this was inspired by particularism because um, sometimes people talk about, well, can we categorize concepts as virtue or vice concepts if we want to say that sometimes kindness is the wrong thing to do or lying is the right thing to do? Can we really put them neatly in virtue or vice categories? But I think that way of talking is just completely wrong because it disguises what we're really talking about. So when we say helpfulness, what we really mean is, like the that's not a neutral word. The neutral description would be to assist someone or something like that. And by helpfulness, what we really mean is we assisted someone and that was right to do, it seems to me. And um, for all the fit concepts, I think you can make a similar point, which is you can give a neutral description of what the action would be devoid of any uh, evaluation. And then once you've said the action is right or wrong, which are actually deontic concepts, you we basically just have all these terms that are like shorthand for certain kinds of actions that were right or wrong. So basically, what do you think about that view of fit concepts? Do you think that captures it or do you think I'm missing something important? So, I mean, I think that people don't ordinarily think that the thing that is, is deontic, they normally think it's good or bad rather than right or wrong. Um, and I'm inclined, you know, I'm inclined to think that thinking that helpfulness, when we do something to someone to act helpfully, that we're always judging that they did the right thing. I don't think that's necessarily the case. It, it might be that it does tend to be associated with the judgment that what they did was good. But I don't think that it's necessarily the case that it, we're always thinking that it was the right thing to do. I think um, we can think of lots of examples where someone did a helpful thing and that was good in the circumstances, but actually it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, and, and this is very sympathetic to sort of Dancy's way of carving things up, I think. Um, um, so that's one thing to say. The other thing to say is that it's controversial that the thin evaluation is built into the content of the concept at all. Um, so um, I'm not actually sure what I think about that. I, I mean, so I, it doesn't really matter so much for me whether it is or isn't. But um, so uh, Petka Varainen, um, who's at University of Leeds, he has um, his book on fit concepts, the, the, lewd, the Rude and the Nasty, I think it's called. Um, truly an excellent book. And um, I mean, of course, it's all wrong because his view is, is uh, very different from mine. But uh, yeah, so, so he uh, makes a very strong case for the claim that the global evaluation, the, the thin evaluation, what you might call the, um, so the judgment that the action was good when it was helpful, that, that that is no part of the semantic content of helpfulness. And he has some very interesting arguments for that view. Um, another dominant view in, uh, in the literature on fit concepts is that that thin evaluation is a part of the, 
content of the concept. And this, I think, sounds to me like the kind of view that, that you would endorse. So Herker and, and uh, Tom, Tom Herker and Daniel Elstein have a paper called From Thick to Thin to Reduction Plans. Um, and on their view, you can um, disentangle the descriptive and the evaluative components. It's not simple. I mean, the descriptive com component is complicated and they allow that sometimes there's an embedded evaluation, but they think that the, the global evaluation, the thin evaluation is a part of the content of the concept. So when you say that someone was helpful, it's um, analytic that you were saying that, that that person is good um, because it is just a part of the, the concept. On Pecker's view, that, that global evaluation is, is communicated by some pragmatic mechanism. So because of background assumptions, we tend to communicate that we think that the action was good when we say that it was helpful, even though help, uh, good is, no, is not part of the content of the concept. Um, I mean, those are just two prominent views on like, concepts, and they're, they're different from from my view, there are other views on the nature of the thick. Um, I think it is still a relatively underexplored topic. And, and what, actually one of the questions that I think needs more attention is what exactly thick concepts are in the first place. Um, so Pecker has written about this, Matty Eklund has written about it um, among other people, but yeah, it's still, it's still something that merits further attention. Okay, yeah, thanks very much for that. Um, I was struggling to hear a few words there, but I hope I've understood correct. Um, yeah, what, what I'm really, what I really find confusing, I think it's problematic, is that you can say a sentence like, um, that was helpful, but was it good? Or something like that. Um, that you can problematize whether kindness is always good or, or something, because that's missing out that um, it's got the evaluation built into it, right? Would you Would you agree with that? So I think you can say things like that. I mean, obviously you can say things like that and, and that's, it's perfectly fine to say things like that. Um, but I don't think that that shows that um, helpfulness or kindness are not evaluative. Um, so, I mean, one way to make the point is to say, well, you can, you can problematize goodness itself. So um, you could... Uh, sometimes the way that this point gets, gets made in the literature is that, uh, in principle, any thick concept is objectionable. Right? We, can, we can object to that concept. We can, we can say, well, um, uh, yes, I guess, you know, technically she's chaste, but that's not in no way a good thing. I don't mean to like, morally endorse, um, endorse that because chastity is just not one of my concept, concepts. Um, but in principle, we can find thin concepts objectionable too. Right? You, might, you might think, well, I mean, yes, okay, that was the morally good thing to do, but you know, I, don't, I don't mean to approve of it or endorse it because you know, I'm some kind of nihilist um, Nietzschean in inverted commas who kind of rejects moral goodness. So the mere fact that we can say those kinds of things doesn't mean or doesn't show, I don't think, that those concepts are not evaluative. That's one point. The, the second point concerns embedded evaluation. So as I was saying earlier, I think that thick concepts involve at least two, in some sense, separate evaluations, genuinely thick concepts. Um, 
And the one is the global evaluation, the thin evaluation that we've been talking about. But then for lots of, of thick concepts, there are embedded evaluations. And those embedded evaluations are, I think, themselves thick. So even if we can detach the thin evaluation, that doesn't mean that helpfulness is not still evaluative because when we start to unpack what helpfulness is, um, we find that we're just pointing to further thick evaluative features. Thank you very much. Uh, Vladimir, did you have a question or a comment? Yeah, I actually did. And um, I would like to ask a specific, a specific, a specific question based on, on the notion of the thick concept, right? So let's say that the thick concepts are both evaluative and descriptive in nature. It's something of a middle ground, let's say. Uh, and I was kind of thinking about the nature of this evaluation most of the time because it's kind of correlated with my thesis at the moment. And um, kind of thinking about it, it seems to me that narrativity also plays a huge role in how we perceive thick concepts or concepts in general. Because, for example, we can use the same concept in a different social context, different social narrative, and be evaluated completely different. And this is also, for example, we can, we can use, for example, ideological concepts, right? And based on the ideology that you subscribe to, concepts have completely different meaning. For example, using the word brave, right? So when a right-wing, um, a person who is leaning towards right-wing uses the word brave, that concept has a specific meaning embedded within it. They see what it, what it means to be brave. It's like X, Epsilon, Z, this is what it means to be brave. For example, when someone who is in a different ideological spectrum, for example, more left-wing leaning person, when they use the word brave, it's going to have a completely different, completely different uh, um, data embedded within it, right? So this is quite interesting to note that it also ranges far beyond ideology. And let's even say that a history of a concept is also determining the concept itself. So this is this might be a McIntyrean critique, even you know McIntyre argues that well. We can evaluate concepts all we want, but we also need to be aware of the history of the concept in order to evaluate it fully. So in this regard, the whole history of the concept and the whole uh, sphere of the concept's influence also influences us how we perceive that con concept. And more or less, that evaluative factor that we have within our concepts are determined by both narrativity and, and, um, and, our, and our bigger meta-narrativity even bigger picture within the framework of that concept's existence. What would you, what would you comment on this, on this comment? And does it seem plausible to you? Yes, I, th I think that's a really important point. Uh, so this is something that, that Bernard Williams emphasizes uh, when he talks about the concepts and ethics and the limits of philosophy. Um, it's something that Pecker refers to as parochiality, that the uh, thick concepts are parochial. They make sense within a certain evaluative perspective. Um, so, yeah, and Williams emphasizes that they make sense within a certain cultural historical perspective and that your particular worldview um, is kind of shaped by your social, historical, cultural reality and the, the concepts that you use are going to depend on that. Um, on that. And I think that this way it raises all sorts of interesting questions and is a way of pressing some problems for the kind of realist view that I want to defend. Um, 
Because I want to say that thick concepts allow us to access the relative reality. But if, you know, if there's, there's this sort of social, cultural, historical variability in these concepts, if, and, and even if two people within the same um, social reality, but from two different sides of the political spectrum can look at the same set of facts and employ ostensibly the same concepts, but see different things because their thick concepts are somehow different. Doesn't this suggest that actually thick concepts are just kind of, I don't know, to put it really roughly sort of crude subjectivist sort of projections onto the world rather than a way of accessing reality. Um, so I think that this is a genuine problem for the kind of view that I want to defend. And it's one that I, I'm trying to tackle actually in um, what I'm going to be presenting at the conference. So um, I'm going to try to come up with a response to this worry. And I do it by thinking about epistemic virtues. So I think that um, some, some thick concepts are better than others when it comes to whether we should use them to access reality or not. And that we have a way of telling which ones that's, that we should, should use um, and that we need to think about epistemic virtues in order to get to the thick concepts that, that we should be using. That's a sort of rough idea. Thanks so much, thanks so much. Um, I'm actually, honestly, like really excited to listen to your presentation now. Good. <laughs> It's actually yeah, uh, my advertising work. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's a it's kind of the perfect place to stop actually because if anybody's curious and wants to hear the conclusion, then they can come to uh, the uh, conference in Pardubice and see yeah. what you discovered in this in your research. Uh, is there any final remarks or any final questions from from anyone? Uh, yeah, I'm loving this conversation and I'd love to hear so much more about it. But of course, we're going to have to stop, so uh, we'll have to save it for the conference. Thank you. Thanks so much um, for doing this. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. I look forward to meeting you and continuing the conversation. Thanks so much, Dr. Roberts. It, 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 was, it was a great discussion. No worries at all. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. You too. Have a nice day. All right. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>